Ian, we were thinking about doing something about freedom of information on the podcast, and I was just wondering if you could tell me how often I journalists actually make FOI requests. I'm afraid I can't tell you that. Page 94, The Private Eye Podcast. Hello and welcome back to a special episode of Page 94, the Private Eye podcast. My name is Andrew Hunter-Murray and this week it is Back to the 80s. Last week the world celebrated Back to the Future Day, uh, which is the year Marty McFly travels to from his home time of 1985. So this week we are celebrating the British 1980s, a decade which saw a rampaging conservative government determined to cut everything for the poor, the army involved in lunatic adventures thousands of miles away for no good reason, everyone feeling miserable all the time, and and a resurgent Labour Party whose idea of a good time is standing around a burning brazier, singing the Internationale, and eagerly awaiting the moment when Lenin thaws out and says, don't worry, lads, I know exactly what we need here. Uh, The only thing that's missing is a bouffant-haired moron in the USA with dreams of becoming president. Thank God we've left it all behind. Uh, To celebrate this orgy of nostalgia, Private Eye has brought back a feature from the 80s, Focus on Fact, which deals with the ongoing ructions in the Labour Party since Jeremy Corbyn's election. And we thought we would ask two of the Eyes reporters, Francis Ween and Adam McQueen, about that. We also asked them about another story from the 80s which has cropped up again, that of Lord Britain, the peer who died in January without finding out that he'd been cleared of suspicion of sexual abuse. Here is Adam McQueen on exactly how far back that story stretches and what we said about it at the time. If you'd said to us in January, by the end of this year, not only will Labour have lost the election, but Jeremy Corbyn, of all people, will be leading the party... I mean, it, it's just extraordinary. But it's felt, it's felt like the kind of 80s retro revival all round this year because what we've been reading about is, is uh, well, Leon Britton, who, who, who keeps popping up, uh, and, and, and various other 80s politicians like Harvey Proctor, who you thought had long since faded away. Uh, when we're on the topic of, of Leon Britton, yes. actually, we should probably mention uh, something that, that, that's still floating around. I saw it um, regurgitated yet again on Twitter the other week, uh, which is, um, you know, amidst all of the uh, Tom Watson apologies and, and, and various stories about Leon Britton seeming to fall down, various people are still banging away and saying, well, of course, Private I was writing about him uh, way, way, way back in the 80s. And I, I had a bit of a dig into our archive and... Um, we should just make clear that this is what we actually wrote, or specifically Paul Foote. It was, I'm yeah, right, it was a Footy yeah. story, wasn't it? I mean, uh, this is what Footy wrote about Leon Britton, and the, and the sum total of what we wrote on, on this topic back in um, I think. June 1984. This is how, 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 how long this thing has been knocking around. Um, this is what Footy wrote. The Cabinet Minister scandal that surfaced briefly in the press last week after a lobby briefing by Mr Bernard Ingham, as a blast from the past, Mrs Thatcher's press secretary, relates to Home Secretary Leon Britton. The story is an old one, even by 1984, which has been around in Fleet Street for some time and has already been widely discounted as false. As long ago as November 1983, the News of the World, also no longer with us, uh, having investigated the story, decided there was nothing in it. In January, the Mail on Sunday also looked into the rumours and reached the same conclusion. Uh, and he goes into uh, the, the theories for why it had uh, erupted uh, at this particular point in the summer of 1984, which was all to do with uh, various operational decisions uh, Leon Britton as Home Secretary was making about MI5 at that point, and various people in MI5 not being pleased about this and, and, and spreading these rumours yet again. But that is what Private Eye's take on, on it was at the time. 
Um, there's also there, there, there's a cover that does the rounds on Twitter, which is um, is, is is so obvious a fake that the, the the guy who's made it hasn't even pretended it isn't. He's 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 messed up the masthead and even put his own sort of watermark on it. But various people are, are, are still continuing to pull this up and say, you know, that here is here is yet more evidence that Private Eye was onto this story years ago, and there's there's something in it. And right. well, well, we do fess up to and take credit for various stories that we were on two oh, years yeah. and years ago. There was the old Britain cover which had him with a police officer in uniform. Um, with some joke you know, implying that the policeman was taking him under arrest or something. Uh, but it was nothing to do with paedophiles. No, it was it just was... a sort of joke. Oh, you see a picture of a home secretary of the policeman. Um, obviously, let's pretend that the policeman is saying, oh, you're going to come quietly, sir. But such is uh, the confusion about all that thing that the police actually got in touch with me a year or so ago and said that who were investigating the Leon Britain thing and said, could you please tell me what was being implied by this genuine private eye cover? Uh, was it um, a coded message saying the Home Secretary is a paedophile? And I said, no, I'm pretty sure it wasn't. <laughs> it, was just, it was just a joke because it was a funny picture of a policeman with the Home Secretary. Are you sure about this? Because we need to get to the bottom of this now. I think it's safe to say we weren't saying it was a paedophile. In fact, the only piece we ran about it said he wasn't a paedophile. Oh, oh, I see. Yeah, it's not as much of a scoop. That's not necessarily a bad thing. I'm just. <laughs> this is the other nice thing, I suppose, about having this very long archive and the institutional memory of the eye. Well, it's just... the institutional memory of the eye is the man sitting in the seat opposite. Yeah, usually because um, <laughs> Francis Ween is kind of the the, the Googler brother. You, I mean, you, your memory for stories. Ian always says he's completely extraordinary, isn't it? I mean, you were sat in that that, that meeting this morning, and, and citing from memory what you'd written about Lord. Who was it? This, this Labour peer who's just walked out on Corbyn. So you've forgotten what happened in the meeting this morning. <laughs> well, well, two of them have, Lord Gravener and Lord Warner, both of whom we've turned over many times. This is the annoying thing, is when you, Francis, remember not only your own stories, but also my stories better than I do, and say, oh, yes, you wrote about that, didn't you? And I say, did I? Because what are we at now? 50, is it 53, 54? 54, 54 years yeah. this year. And we do have that archive going all the way back. And it's amazing how often when names pop up, you just do feed something into the... We, we, we're lucky enough to have a computerised archive here in the office. And, and you know, the eye will have been onto these various shady characters from years and years back. Footy used to love doing that. I mean, I remember Foot, uh, Paul Foot not that long before he died. It was absolutely gleeful because there was someone he had first exposed, a dodgy businessman, in the 1960s, late 60s, I think. And then finally, in the um, 1990s, uh, this chap was done. And there was footage sort of 30 years on. Saying, Got him at last! <laughs> <laughs> well, it's like Geoffrey Archer. I mean, Paul first wrote about Geoffrey Archer in Private Eye back in the late 60s. And it was just after he'd left uh, working for the United Nations Association where he'd fiddled his expenses. I think we can say that these days, can't we? Um, well, hum- Humphrey Barclay, who I knew, who uh, ran it, um, came to Paul and said, it's terrible, this man, Archer, this boy Archer, I've had to let him go because he's been fiddling his expenses. But he's been adopted as the Conservative candidate in Louth. This man is going to become a Conservative MP if you don't expose him and do something about it. And Paul said, oh, yes, so you think he's not fit to be in Parliament then? He's not fit to be in a Rambald home, frankly. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and so Footy exposed him. Archer's career carried on unimpeded in spite of various close shaves. And he became Lord Archer of the realm and uh, went on the way to becoming the Conservative candidate for Mayor of London until was eventually done for perjury. Yeah. Uh, and again, you know, you have to wait 30 years for these things to happen. But eventually the bodies of the enemies float by. And it's particularly satisfying for 
people who've worked at Private Eye for a long time, as people seem to do, uh, when the same people are still there, you think, oh, I wrote about that person 25 years ago. Well, it was one of your first pieces, actually, Adam. So the, the recent David Cameron book, Call Me Dave, yeah. Uh, yeah. the Oakshot and Ashcroft book, there was a piece sort of 18 years ago which was about uh, a young hack called Isabel Oakshot, and she was being taken in by this lurid story of undergraduate life. And then 18 years later, exactly the same thing That was the, the most fantastic thing, because I would have had no, absolutely no idea, because at that point, Isabel Oakeshott was an obscure, sort of, you know, fresh out of college, working yeah. for, I think it was the Edinburgh Evening News, Edinburgh wasn't Evening it? News, and I, yeah. I, I, I vaguely remembered the story when, when Andy mentioned it, but, um, but there she was, you know, yeah. there, there, I'd written her name down at the time without, without knowing what she would later turn out to be, yeah. and uh, 18 years on, load back of under- to the story. <laughs> <laughs> load of rich young undergraduates, she'd approached them for a story about high-flying undergraduate life, and they'd said, oh yeah, we're always renting helicopters and flying down to London for the weekend, and it was complete All crop. completely made up, wasn't it? Yeah, absolute nonsense. Um, and then you got the editor ringing up and complaining. and I did. It was the first time I'd ever had the uh, subject of a story phoning up and shouting at me. Well, what, many. what's your protocol when that happens? Hide. I, d- I, d- I just claim it was one of your stories, Andy. Yes. <laughs> I don't blame most things on you, actually. So. But there is another tactic, which is a very ingenious one that people have learned over time, that to not engage with us at all. But to say to anyone, and this happens particularly with um, with the Rotten Boroughs column, that when the local paper then phone the, phone the councillor, the corrupt councillor, to follow it up, they just say, oh, no, 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 absolute nonsense and we're suing private eye. They never even but have to not. send us as much as a legal letter because it's not nonsense because it's extremely well founded and entirely true. But you just claim you are and people are going to go, oh, yeah, so you're a private eye. Getting sued all the time, aren't they? So um, that must be true. Oh, that's <laughs> very clever. technique that. I mean, that's only going back retro again. When... We first ran a piece about Cyril Smith in 1979, May 79, I think it was, about uh, these boys in uh, Rochdale who had sworn affidavits about how he had done terrible things to them. His lawyers, um, when Fleet Street started taking interest, just spread the word saying, oh, no, we're suing, don't worry, we're suing Rochdale's alternative paper and we're suing anyone else who repeats it like Private Eye. And we never heard a peep from them. I mean, I wrote about in the New Statesman at the same time and never heard a peep out of them. Uh, but it worked. I mean, all the sort of, you know, apart from Private Eye and pathetic little thing by me and the New Statesman and this Rochdale's alternative paper, all the great mighty organs of Fleet Street were scared out of their wits, thinking, oh gosh, they're going to be sued. Oh dear, well, we can't go into that then. <laughs> Adam, have you been doing Focus on Fact since it came back? Two glorious issues, yes. Yeah. Focus on Fact was a, a, a very old cartoon strip from the Eye, which ran in the 70s through to sort of the early 80s. I guess it kind of started off as a spoof of kind of factual cartoon strips that used to run in the back of um, Sunday colour supplements, things like Tim Hunkins' The Rudiments of Wisdom. and There were all sorts of ones like that, weren't there, in the old days, Francis? Oh, yes, I think there might even have been one called Focus on Fact, I seem to remember from the 60s, which was very much in that style, usually about sort of three panels in it, just telling a story at enormous length. I mean, you know, over weeks and months and months, like serialising an encyclopaedia, practically. I think the Daily Mail may have, may have had one years ago. Were they the ancestors of the Deirdre's photo casebook that you still get in the sun today? No, they no, weren't no. nearly as exciting <laughs> no, as that. No, no, no. no, no, no. no, no they no, were no, very, no. very educational, very factual. In fact, what they most remember, resembled, and this is something for older readers, is is the picture stories in Blue Peter annuals that you used to get. You'd kind of <laughs> the story of the Brontes, as told in a strip cartoon that was considerably less exciting than you thought it was going to be when you when you first saw it. Okay, so 
in the late 70s, early 80s, this was in the eye originally. And somehow that just fitted the whole Jeremy Corbyn thing, which is, is just a feast of retro. I mean, it's amazing, because the, the, the most incredible thing about Corbyn... Well, I mean, Corbyn himself is he is just a figure from the early 80s, and all of these people he's surrounding himself with are all, all of that era as well. I mean, this, this idea that this is some great new politics, and actually this is, this is the old-school militant and the GLC coming back with a vengeance, unchanged, slightly greyer and slightly, slightly podgier in some <laughs> cases, but it's, it's the very same people. So it just stuck as a sort of perfect marriage of kind of form and content to uh, revive focus on fact and and go back in with this. And and he's obliged ever since because uh, this week I was thinking, well, who do we do this week? And he's gone and appointed Seamus Milne as, as his director of communications and strategy. So, um, you know, we can delve straight back into the, uh, the glorious days when uh, Seamus Milne was working for um, Straight Left magazine, uh, which was Straight an organ. Left. Now, have I got this right? Communist Party of Straight Great Britain. Yeah. I get very, very muddled up with my various um, communist uh, factions and things. Adam McQueen and Francis Ween there. Now, as it's 80s week, we thought we'd have a quick look at the eye's long history of being totally behind the curve when it came to new technologies for satire. Uh, Case in point, podcasts were invented about 50 years ago by now. The last episode of Page 94 featured the sound of a squeezy duck given away at one of the conferences. So here is the sound of a flexi-disc. This was uh, an amazing technology which basically allowed you to glue a radio show to the front of a magazine, which at the time of the 60s was pretty cool, let me tell you. Here is Ian Hislop, the editor of Private Eye, on the flexi-disc phenomenon. They're like LPs. In the early days, they used to put them on the cover, and it was Willie Rushton and uh, John Wells and Barry Humphreys and them all sort of messing about. Here is your heavy petting music from Jane Firkin and Serge Forward. On the best of them, there's Peter Cook and Dudley Moore, an extraordinary range of 60s people. Uh, Sorry. Do you know this is the first time I've made love to a virgin? Oh, I knew I should have taken me tired, sir. Anyway, dear me, sorry. I love you. That should be 32 and 6, please. And then when I became editor in the 80s, you know, my first thought was obviously to look uh, backwards. And I thought, well, we could do those again. And vinyl was still just about viable uh, in the 80s. I did these and we had John Sessions performing on them and Harry Enfield. And I got Peter Cook to do his judge. He'd done a very famous summing up of the Thorpe trial. And we rewrote a summing up in the Archer trial which was an equally balanced uh, verdict um, from a judge. And that was the when Lady Archer was described as fragrant in court and the judge got rather overexcited by Lady Archer generally. And Peter was very good at overexcited judges. It is not within my powers to advise you on the sum of money to be awarded to Mr Archer, should you so award. But when you do... You must summon into your mind not only the Olympic sprinter and former Prime Minister Mr Archer himself, but above all, the ethereal, one might almost say angelic figure of his poor, wronged wife. About half a million, I would say. Wasn't one of the flexi-discs used to cover a naked Margaret Thatcher? Am I making that up? No, we, we, we literally had a picture of Mrs Thatcher naked on the cover and we put the disc on top she wasn't entirely naked but you had to buy the mag and take the disc off in order to find that out sky had just been invented so i think it was actually a sky an i sky 
flexi disc. Uh, it was that long ago, but um, at the time, oh, it, it was it was the future. Ian Heslop there. Now, one of the eye's newer innovations, again, which does also go back a long way if you know where to look, is Seen and Heard, which is where reporter and cartoonist David Ziggy Green goes along to an amazing array of events, from Conquer Championships to arms fairs, and then he draws them in painstaking detail and reports what people said at the events in this amazing blend of reporting and cartooning. Uh, If Private Eye was a high street, he would be the fusion restaurant, variously freaking people out and thrilling them in equal measure. Here he is on his methods and how he goes about his work. I fell into it by accident. I I started doing it for for Charlie Hebdo, which at the time, time, uh, in the UK, nobody nobody really knew or, or cared about Charlie Hebdo, and that was in 2010. I used to travel with uh, with bands. I, I used to do music videos and VJ for bands. So right. long story short is I did a diary comic of a tour around the UK and that fell in the hands of, of Charlie Hebdo. One day, it was back in 2010 when the original student occupations were, were happening in UCL and Charlie Hebdo wanted to a report on that. They wanted to see how students were living in the UK. So they literally sent me to do it and I'd never done it before. I had to just go out the next day and speak to people and draw what I saw. What kind of thing draws your eye? Because I have a list of places that you've been to for recent Seen and Herds, and they include uh, a Conquer Championship, uh, a refugee camp in Calais, some Morris dancers, the London Fetish Fair's BDSM after party. It's quite fair to say these are eclectic, I think. (laughs) It's got to be, I think, a combination of something that uh, I've never been to, yeah, so your latest one is about twerking. Yes, I've got my hot pants on right <laughs> right now. I can confirm that. When you get there, do you tell people that you're doing this? Do you say, I am drawing you for private eye? Tell me what you think about this. In the beginning, I wanted to, to tell people. But I found that if you tell them where you're from, it skews their answers. Often in the beginning, I, I might say, I'm doing something for private eye. And the person will say, oh, well, well, you want satirical answers then, don't you? And I think, no, no, I just want natural. So, so I dropped that. I'm always happy to tell them afterwards, and so there's nothing secretive about it, but I, I try not to in the beginning. It's yeah. a very good rule of private eye journalism is tell people afterwards. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so what was the twerking thing like? I mean, was it a twerking event? No, it was, it, was, it was a discussion panel. Um, uh, so there was no actual twerking. Oh, it no. Was, but seriously, it was, it was, it was a discussion about uh, twerking as, as an act of, res- of, of resistance, um, it uh, yeah, it was very interesting, very very interesting. Yeah, and um, these things they kind of stray into the political or the surprising or the social comment when you think they're not going to. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, well, that that was the thing that was that was most surprising was how many sort of political social levels there are to the opinions of of what twerking is and what happens. I'm literally putting the the report together now. Uh, not not as I'm sitting here, but I'm going to head off and finish it and. Uh, there's so much to put in it, I, I'm not quite sure what. It's just the different uh, perceptions of how it's been hijacked by Miley Cyrus and and the hip-hop music industry. And it's really, really, really interesting. So hopefully I can at least get an, an ounce an ounce of it into the next report. Yeah. What's happening with twerk, the consumption of twerk, I would really be reluctant to say that it's benefiting black women. I feel that it's actually a violence upon them that's been inflicted in a different way. I'll record the the interviews. Because one thing I learned in the beginning, in the beginning I thought I'd be I'd be hardcore, I'd be serious and I'd just sketch and interview at the same time. And I also learned that you can't interview somebody, take in all of their words, 
also what's going on around them and draw and write down their work. So I, I decided very quickly I should invest in, in recording material. So I, I, I've got a dictaphone which I'll record interviews with so that when I get home, at least I can just listen back and I actually get... Because it's very important to also get exactly what they say because often their personality would come through in their actual... Um, even just the order of their words. You know, Once you change that, sometimes you can change the personality... How do you get into some of these places? You don't have to give away your specific methods because a lot of people get a bit twitchy about that. But um, you were in, was it an arms fair recently? I tried to get in. I got I got to the point I registered online and I did all the all the proper procedures and I was going through the media sort of department and then at the press area and stuff. And then, and then they sort of just clocked it and said, hang on, why does this guy want to draw? This doesn't make sense. Um, and so we went through this massive procedure and where... They just wouldn't, they, they didn't get the concept of why I wanted to go into the fair and draw things. Yeah. So I decided to try and sneak in with the, uh, with the old ticket that they'd sent me. And so I, I got through about three or four barriers of security by just blagging my way. <laughs> and then I got, I got to the last for the final barrier where I could see the exhibit, but then the woman sort of clocked and said, no, this ticket doesn't look right to me. You have to go. And so I ended up having to go to the press area and they said, hey, we told you not to bother showing up and all this sort of stuff. <laughs> Somebody went off and spoke to the, big, to the big man out the back. And then they came out and said, no, we don't really get what you want to do sorry you're not going in i said is it because i'm drawing and they say yes we don't quite <laughs> i remember at the time i was absolutely gutted I, I couldn't get in but i thought i'll just write up anyway that my yeah. little adventure and so a lot of people really liked that one because they said it was it was quite different and yeah. then this year i decided to just hang out with the protesters outside are there anywhere you've got in trouble or people you know like the sort of the arms fair where they mm. said you tried to get in you black your way in and they said they eventually twigged i think it was the the hacking trial when I, I went and sat in that and I sat up in the public gallery where as far as I was aware you weren't allowed to sketch or do anything so I had to sit and take notes and sketch and you know I was aware of, of just over my shoulder was the the security guy but I, that nothing happened with that uh, I was just very very sneaky I, I sketched on very small small pads so I have little notepads and so I can be very sneaky with sketching I mean, it's not an easy art form to be really inconspicuous. Yeah, that's <laughs> that is the problem. That is a problem, and because occasionally I've seen some people drawing at protests and things like that. So over the years, it's, I've spotted a few. When when a protest is still it's or stationary, you can draw and sketch, but you can't draw a moving protest. <laughs> you can't walk and draw at the same time. And I've seen some people do that. Try it and then realise very quickly that hang on, this isn't working. When people find out what you do. Do they say, oh, you should come and do us? People have invited me and sometimes I've... Uh, to, they'll send me <laughs> stuff online and they'll say, oh, we're having this event or oh, we're this and that. It doesn't really happen that often, to be honest. Maybe only a few times. Um, the, the Morris dancing was the one where I think they were big private eye fans and they said, oh, come and come. We're having this big festival in the town where we're going to have hundreds of Morris dancers. And I thought, oh, okay, that, why not? That might be, might be a lot. It's so, very visual, that one. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> One other thing that I've sort of picked up is that I always try to be the last to leave because often, uh, for example, I went to a UKIP, a big rally in, in London, maybe about a year or two ago. You know, it was Nigel. After Nigel had done a, a tour of the UK, he'd, he'd come down to London. So I went and I was sitting there and um, I decided to be the last to leave because you, you never know what happens. And so you see uh, a lot of the a lot of the, the rest of the media will sod off after Nigel said his bit. But then I didn't realise that he actually just sets up on the stage. He's um, a book signing table. 
and he just does a, he sells his books and does book signings afterwards and I thought well, well, I didn't know that was coming and so I always sort of like to stay as li- late as I can because you don't know what's still gonna what's happening afterwards after the fanfare essentially so yeah we should we should plug your book oh yeah if you want if you want yeah sure why not it's called Seen and Heard, seen as in S-C-E-N-E, like it appears in the Meg, and um, illustrated snapshots of modern life. I decided to put it together partially because some people wanted to, to know where there was a bit of a, a way you could see some of the older ones and things like that in a, in a collection. So I put one together and it's the first two years of all the reports that appeared in the magazine. A couple of extras, but it also has a few little chapters that actually explain and a few examples of my sketches on the spot and and stuff like that. Over the years you've been doing it, is there anything that you've seen that's particularly stayed with you? The every every year I think about it and it's the one that it's the last it's actually the last report in 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 the book and I really wanted to squeeze it in and it's the homeless people uh, surviving winter. It's the homeless guide to surviving winter. And uh, I spent um, spent two or three nights out uh, when I did it in the winter. I didn't stay out all night, but I stayed out to the late night soup uh, vans and things like that. And I walked around London and interviewing homeless people. They actually wanted to be drawn, so they were happy to be drawn as cartoons. But the thing that I learned, which I didn't know, was that they needed socks. And it was almost it was a universal answer amongst them all was that we need socks because once your socks get wet, you know you. You're, you're screwed. You know, socks more than anything. And that people always give them um, gloves and beanies. And they often feel bad because they think, I've got a bag full of gloves here. I just need socks. And at the time, it was just something that I didn't realise. The, the second night, I went around and everybody I interviewed, I gave them some socks as well. Because I thought, well, you know, I'm not going to just interview them and then sod off. And so I tried to tell everybody... Now, always carry a pair of socks in the bottom of your bag and so that when you pass a homeless person in the winter, just give them that sort of... Even if you go to the pound shop and just get a pack of, you know, five... So that's one thing I always... that's sort of stayed with me quite a bit. David Ziggy Green. Uh, That's all for this week. That ends our 80s night at Private Eye. So we've done the past pretty thoroughly, and next time we will be doing the future. Uh, We mentioned freedom of information at the start of the show, and the government is currently consulting on changes to FOI, so we thought we'd talk to a load of reporters here about what that might mean for them. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. Thank you very much for listening, and goodbye.